This past Sunday, the Fed dropped interest rates nearly to zero. Then, every day last week, it announced emergency lending programs. It pledged to spend at least $700 billion supporting mortgages, banks, money market mutual funds, corporate bonds, and lending to central banks of other countries because the dollar is the currency of world trade. We are being very aggressive, and I think our chairman, Jay Powell, has learned from the experience of 2008. We're moving much faster than we moved in 2008. We're being more aggressive. Is there more we can do? Yes. Is there more we may end up doing? Yes. But I think we're being very aggressive, and I, I think that's the right thing. Can you characterize everything that the Fed has done this past week as essentially flooding the system with money? Yes, exactly. And there's no end to your ability to do that? There is no end to our ability to do that. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Michael Goldstein, uh, with, along with my co-host, Pierre Richard. Pierre, how are you doing? Very well. How are you? Doing very, very well as well. Uh, today, we have, a, we have a great guest. We have Marcel uh, Berger from Berger Crypto. How are you doing, Marcel? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thanks for, thanks for asking. So uh, we wanted to have you on to discuss the, uh, the now perennial hot topic of stock to flow. You've been doing a lot of uh, quantitative analysis of stock to flow, and you've come to some very interesting conclusions. So I thought it'd be good to to go over some of those. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And by the way, uh, thanks for the invitation, uh, Jens. I'm uh, pretty excited to be on your show as well. Yeah. So you know, can we start off just kind of like before everything, like uh, what's your story in Bitcoin, and and how did you come to it? Yeah, that's a nice one. Uh, so uh, my story is actually a, a little bit painful uh, because uh, it's something I didn't uh, really mention in the Dutch uh, podcast, uh, but uh, uh, it's it's actually quite <laughs> quite a good story um, because the first time I heard about Bitcoin was actually in 2009. <laughs> and it was uh, one of my colleagues. Uh, I was At the time I was working um, as a market maker and uh, one of my uh, market maker colleagues um, had a strong background in IT, and he, yeah, he more or less stumbled upon it and uh, informed us about it. Uh, his, his colleague uh, traders, basically, and I think it was uh, yeah just around the time that um, that Second Life uh, was there as well. So without doing any research at all, I basically uh, yeah said well. This is just the next Linden dollar, and I'm not interested in that kind of crap. It's uh, yeah, it's for uh, it's for nerds, and uh, there's nothing there for me. And yeah, I still blame myself for uh, for being a bit ignorant at that time. Uh, yeah, that's impressively uh, early. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I could have been there very early, but uh, so it yeah, it took uh, like uh, seven more years for me to actually uh, yeah. Uh, to get into it uh, so and, and that was uh, near the end of 2016 uh, that I started paying attention again and that was basically driven by uh, two different forces 
on the one hand, uh, I was at, it was at the end of the year. So, um, my manager at the time asked me to, uh, to look back, uh, on, on my, on 2016 and work on a personal plan for uh, like 2017. And it was just around the time that, uh, yeah, the blockchain started to buzz. Um, and yeah, most of my colleagues were quite, uh, quite yeah, negative about it. Uh, they, they all their opinions and. Yeah, somehow I'm uh, I'm more or less of a contrarian uh, often. So uh, I wanted to uh, yeah I wanted to explore uh, what it was and uh, yeah how we could uh, actually use the technology uh, within an asset management uh, uh, area. So I yeah I started to uh, to look into Coursera courses. Uh, if I remember well, it was the, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technologies uh, course and uh, and the crypto uh, yeah and the cryptography course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with uh, Dan Bernay. Yeah, I, I read the Blockchain Revolution uh, book from the Tapscots, uh, and then a little later phase, I actually uh, read Crypto Assets uh, from Bernisky as well. So I, I really yeah tried to do a, a lot of homework on it. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was basically the, the, the theoretical deep dive. Um, and at the same time, it was, it was around the same time that, uh, one of my, f- yeah, w- actually my best friend or one of my best friends was uh, hospitalized and, um, I was about to pay him a visit and, um, yeah, um, one of, one of his other friends was there as well to pay him a visit. And when we walked outside together, uh, uh to the parking lot, uh, yeah, he was uh, opening the doors of a brand new Porsche, and I was like, hmm? "What's going on here?" And I thought this guy was—he uh, uh, just left his, uh, yeah, his back office job or his mid office job, so he was not really doing well in his career. And I couldn't rhyme the two uh, at the time, uh, and I found out that he was, uh, yeah, doing something with uh, <laughs> with Bitcoin. <laughs> So I got yeah, I, I just, 2016. So it's just a yeah. Porsche, not a Lambo yet. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the funny thing was that um, yeah, basically those two forces uh, drove me to have a have a look or a, a good look myself as well. Um, and so yeah, early 2017, I started playing around with the technology. So uh, because my thought was yeah, all the theory is nice, but the only way to really learn is by uh, by, by practice. So uh, I actually recall using uh, the, the Jax wallet. I'm not sure if you guys uh, know of it, but that I think the Jax wallet was one of the first things that I uh, I, I used at the time. Completely clueless about uh, about everything that was going on there uh, in terms of like infrastructure. So that was uh, quite a journey. Um, so and in, in order to speed up the learning process, um, I set up an, a WhatsApp group at the time with some uh, some of my fraternity friends from college, uh, who also uh, were also interested. And uh, so so basically, we had a platform to discuss everything with each other. And uh, one of the guys had a strong uh, cryptographic background background as well. And <clears throat> He, uh, he basically knew this, the entire scene already and he, he knew all the ins and outs, but he didn't really think about uh, uh, investing at the time. And yeah, basically we, we jumped uh, we jumped together at that time, uh, roughly. Um, and that was also the, the time that, that there, uh, yeah, that basically 
there, there, there was a, a sort of spin-off of, of that first app group where we only focused on the investment uh, side of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that was roughly around the same time that I started my uh, my Twitter account uh, because yeah I never used Twitter before in my life uh, but I noticed that there was a lot of information there um, and one thing for me was to actually uh, get some information out of uh, out of all the other accounts that were active uh, on Twitter and the other uh, thing that I really loved about it was that I was able to ventilate my thoughts and, and let other people challenge them as well. Um, so yeah, that was basically uh, yeah how I how I got into it. What what I find fascinating about um, like how 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 you got into it type stories is that they are microeconomic examples of demand, right? And so then we can dig into them and see um, have some insights in generalized to demand. Because, for example, you know, seeing your friend with the Porsche, you know, that he made money off of Bitcoin, um, that's a, that, that means that the price going up attracts more demand, right? In the sense of, hey, you, it caught your attention that this was a successful project. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it really seems to spark interest. And it's, uh, it's also something that I noticed uh, today as well. Uh, since that Bitcoin is uh, strongly recovering, I I really know it is an uptick in in interest uh, from uh, yeah from all over the world basically. So yeah, contrasted with um, you know when you first heard about it in two thousand nine, without you know any kind of other additional information, uh, I think it is rational actually to not be interested in Bitcoin in two thousand. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, for me at the time it was. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. It's only in hindsight that yeah. it, it sort of makes sense because now you see the the market that's developed around it. Exactly. Yeah, and right now, I, I yeah, I've, I took a deep dive and I I really uh, looked into it from a macroeconomic approach as well, and uh, that's something I didn't even think of uh, at the time when they presented it to me uh, in two thousand nine. In two thousand nine, I just thought, well, there's <laughs> there's just another virtual currency that's. Uh, that has no use at all. Uh, yeah, still regret it. It's uh, it still feels painful uh, thinking uh, thinking back about it. Yeah. Oh, I I don't think that there exists a Bitcoiner anywhere who does not have some kind of regret story. <laughs> Probably, yeah. So, um, so you know, uh, you know, fast forwarding from you know 2019, uh, tw- 2009 through through the 2016 2017 bubble. And, you know, up to today, uh, this past year, we saw an incredible amount of interest around the now legendary Plan B's uh, stock to flow model, um, which you've now dove into quite a bit. Uh, Could you give us, you know, kind of your higher level summary of what that model means? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, March 19 that uh, Plan B uh, wrote his article or at least published this article. And um, in this article, he uh, introduced two models. Uh, one was a model in which he uh, tried to quantify a relation across assets or cross commodity, basically, uh, between stock to flow and uh, market cap. So he, uh, he was saying if we are uh, going to plot a line on uh, 
stock to flow versus market, market cap of uh, Bitcoin, gold and silver, uh, then we are actually able to uh, draw a neat line uh, through those points. And at the same time, he did the same thing for Bitcoin only versus uh, the stock to flow. Um, I'm not sure in, uh, if, if the, the listeners of the podcast are aware of what stock to flow is, uh, but the best way to, uh, uh, to explain that would be to, uh, to say, okay, um, if we look at the yearly production and we divide that, uh, uh, sorry, if, if we look at the, the current stock and we divide it by the yearly production, then you have like a sort of multiple and that multiple is what we call uh, the stock to flow. Um, and with it, uh, it is a, a, a measure of scarcity. Um, so it was quite interesting to see an article coming uh, coming online that uh, was trying to uh, quantify the relation between scarcity and market cap. So I think that's probably... Uh, uh yeah a reasonable uh, explanation of what uh, yeah what the article described yeah it was striking to see uh the relationship between all of the other uh you know goods that have a stock to flow greater than one which is a surprisingly few number of goods <laughs> that we know of yep. are currently uh so it's, it's actually quite a human event just to uh have discovered a new thing that could have a stock to flow greater than one um so with the actual like process of you know trying to turn this into a, a meaningful quantitative model, he was basically just using a you know rather simple linear regression. Um, can you tell us how that works? Yeah, the the, the thing is, so, uh, a linear regression is uh, is a very old concept, uh, basically, or uh, the, the term regression itself comes from uh, 1870, uh, roughly. It was at the time uh, when uh, uh, Galton. Did some uh, research uh, into uh, yeah, the inheritance of uh, of certain properties uh, from from humans uh, from parents to children. So, um, if you, for instance, have like two very tall uh, tall adults or two tall uh, parents, uh, they are most likely to produce offspring that's uh, taller than averages as well. But that effect seems to come down over time. So. Um, how he how he called it was uh, the, it regresses uh, to the mid, so that's basically where the term regression comes from. In terms of uh, instead of like progression, there's like regression. Um, and in yeah, in the fifties, um, it was the, the 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 theoretical framework around it was more uh, yeah was was improved by uh, by Tinbergen at the time, or at least he was one of the. Uh, the founding fathers of econometrics. So, yeah, basically the idea of, of linear regression is that uh, you look for a, uh, uh, a relation between two variables uh, by assuming uh, a certain distribution. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the thing was, uh, so we used linear regression and uh, when you apply linear regression, uh, uh, basically, the one thing that you need to respect is uh, that you should always work with two uh, uh, stationary variables. And uh, in this case, we were looking at two non-stationary variables. So that was a bit worrying. Um, and, and, and yeah, basically, you have to uh, respect the, the Gauss-Markov assumptions. So that's quite a technical story. Uh, but basically, it says, okay, uh, uh, 
uh, we have a linear model and uh, for this linear model uh, it should hold that the expected value of the error uh, term is, uh, is zero which basically means that on average uh, the regression uh, should be correct um, and the second uh, assumption is that the error and the independent variables uh, should be independent and then um, yeah there are assumptions around the error term uh, with respect to the homoscedasticity as well. So that basically is uh, uh, saying that uh, the error should have uh, an, a constant variance, variance over time. And uh, the last one is, um, ah yeah, uh, the, that there should be zero correlation uh, between the different error terms. Uh, so there is no autocorrelation uh, uh, um, in the errors. So uh, that's basically uh, the, the theoretical framework uh, uh, under which you can uh, uh, use a linear regression uh, to quantify a relation between uh, between two variables or variables. So yeah, sorry for the listener. Sorry, my my English is uh, not uh, always very well. <laughs> English is not my mother tongue. Uh, I'm Dutch, so excuse me if uh, my pronunciation is not always very uh, very well. Uh, it's Perfectly fine. So uh, once you have this, you know, so basically there's a simple linear regression on the the stock to flow uh, over time with the the, the price. Uh, what What is like the sort of specific model? How would you characterize the model that is derived from this? Sorry, what's that again? Like what what can we say about the... the the, the information that came out of doing this linear regression. Yeah, so, so basically what's, uh, at least what, what triggered me at the time was uh, uh, when I read this article, I was really impressed by, uh, by, by the idea conceptually. Um, and when I, look into, when I looked into it a bit deeper, um, I, uh, I noticed that uh, uh, what, what I said before is that um, the regression was uh, performed on uh, to non-stationary uh, variables, uh, so that was for me already a reason to reach out to uh, uh, to Plan B uh, in his uh, Twitter timeline and tell him like, hey, uh, "Are you uh, are you aware that uh, you might be actually uh, uh, looking at a spurious uh, regression uh, over here because uh, that's uh, the main risk of uh, running a regression onto." Uh, um, non-stationary variables and that basically led him to uh, uh yeah to reach out to me uh, in a in a private message uh, and he said like yeah well okay that's uh, that sounds interesting uh, let's uh, meet for lunch and uh, so so we basically uh, met for lunch and we discussed uh, the entire model a bit more in depth one of the other things that i uh, i noticed at the time was that um he was um, more or less showcasing the model uh, by means of the high uh, R squared. Mm -hmm. And uh, the R squared is like a, a goodness of fit uh, measure. So it basically tells you if you draw a line between uh, through the entire cloud of points, basically. So if you would uh, plot uh, the stock to flow versus uh, the Bitcoin market cap, then you would... Uh, uh, you went up with an entire cloud of points, right? So, and through that cloud of points, you can draw a line. And basically what regression does is uh, minimizing all the distances from all those different points uh, to that line in the cloud. 
So, um, um, yeah, so um, what, what he basically said, okay, uh, we have an, uh, a model uh, where we see an R squared of uh, 0.95, uh, and basically the maximum value that you can see is one. So when you have an R squared of one, it means that all the, the points in a cloud are basically lying exactly on the line. Um, so when you reach an R squared of uh, 95% or 0.95, that's, that's quite high. Um, so, so to be clear on that, like I'm, I, you know, I did a bunch of statistics in college and stuff, but not as much, you know, kind of in the real world. Uh, when you, when I hear numbers like that, wow, that sounds impressive. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, from your experience in financial modeling, that is an actually very interesting uh, R squared value. Yeah, the thing was, it, it's, it is really interesting, uh, but at the same time, it's also to be expected more or less, because uh, when you uh, regress through uh, two non-stationary variable, uh, variables on each other, uh, then most of the times uh, when those two variables are, are uptrending or downtrending together, then you will find a high R squared. Um, so one of the first lessons in my uh, uh, in my econometrics classes was always to uh, to difference your time series, which means uh, so much as that you look uh, for the differences in between the data points and that you actually run your analysis on those differences to make sure that you are looking at a stationary uh, at a stationary time series. Um, so. Um, yeah, and, and to illustrate that, so yeah, um, <laughs> the, 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 the fun part was, that, so when I uh, did my first write-up, I basically checked um, his work against all those uh, different uh, gauss Markov assumptions and also uh, looked into this uh, possibly uh, spurious uh, relation. Um, and to illustrate my point uh, on, on Twitter as well, I actually uh, showed uh, that uh, there was also a very interesting relation between the Bitcoin market cap and uh, the cumulative number of uh, 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 times that uh, a person goes uh, to the toilet in a, uh, in a certain period of time. So. Uh, uh, the funny thing was that the, the R squared in that uh, uh, analysis was also like 95%. Uh, um, so that was just to illustrate. And um, yeah, so after, after I, I actually said, well, okay, uh, listen, uh, conceptually, the idea is really nice, uh, but uh, I think the model is flawed uh, because it doesn't meet like all those assumptions and uh, because of the fact that you're uh, running your analysis on uh, two non-stationary vi- uh, variables. Um, yeah, you should be a bit more cautious with uh, promoting uh, the article uh, so aggressively. At, at least that was how I perceived it at the time. And I was I was really uh, really a pain in his ass as well uh, during that time because uh, any time that he was promoting his article, uh, there was a there was a sort of warning uh, in the same uh, in the same uh, thread. Uh, in the same Twitter thread, uh, yeah, about uh, about my findings, I was saying, yeah, look, uh, people, uh, be a bit more cautious and uh, don't think that this model is uh, is valid enough to predict anything because yeah, the assumptions uh, underneath the model are not uh, are not met. So, and I, I think I did that right up in yeah, I actually published my my first uh, article in uh, in July. Uh, 
And after that, I went on a holiday. Um, and during my holiday, uh, it was uh, uh, Nick. So that Nick is the, uh, the Australian uh, guy who wrote his, mm-hmm. uh, his a very, very well-written, decent article uh, on, uh, on, on the, yeah, uh, in which he basically uh, did a, a proper model, model validation as well. Uh, but he was, uh, yeah, he basically did a more complete uh, review of, of the work. Uh, so um, to illustrate that a bit more, uh, I would say that uh, if you would open your college books on, uh, on linear regression and time series modeling, I probably use like the first four chapters uh, of it uh, to uh, as, as a source of uh, for uh, for my review, and, and Nick basically used the full book. Uh, so uh, uh, co-integration in my in my college books was like mentioned at the end of the book. So uh, that was uh, that was great fun. <laughs> so uh, he did he did, he really did a very very good job in uh, in in. in uh, yeah going through the through the entire uh, analysis and um so what what nick showed was that um uh, that stock to flow and the bitcoin market cap were basically co-integrated which uh, means so much as that um the two variables are not really correlated but they are uh, uh they are co-integrated which uh, says that they're more or less dancing around each other through time. Um, another way to think about this would be to uh, to think about it as an uh, yeah as an hedge fund uh, more or less uh, because that's where you see it often applied uh, when uh, people are uh, are um, are into the field of uh, statistical pair trading. So where you have like two stocks uh, from a so- sort of same uh, uh, from the same domain uh, and they they tend to trade around each other uh, around the same uh, they follow the same trend basically and uh, when when one is really uh, more up than the other you can sell the one that's more up and uh, buy the one that's uh, that's lagging in, in terms of performance and close it again when there is like uh, 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 you know when they when they when they start to trade uh, uh, near each other again yeah, the metaphor I've heard from uh, Plan B a number of times is oh, really? the drunk yeah. man walking the dog. Yeah, that's also a nice way to uh, to look at it, indeed. And and I think that's probably a, a more interesting way to think about it because uh, one of the uh, one of the advantages in this uh, in this story is that uh, the stock to flow, of course, is a, a deterministic uh, uh, variable. I mean, we know where uh, stock to flow is heading over time. And usually for any asset uh, price, uh, that's a yeah, that's a random walk basically. So you have no idea where it's going, and yeah, that's that's the probably the beauty as well of the the relation that uh, <coughs> that we have here. So, so in that in that sense, it's almost like the the dog knows exactly what it's walking to, you know, a fire hydrant or something, and the drunk man. Uh, the price is kind of stumbling around up and down following it and getting pulled by it. Yeah, I would rather describe it a bit different, but I th- yeah. So let's say that uh, you have a drunk man, right? Uh, and you also have a road. So you have a, a very a very wide road in this case. And uh, the drunk man will follow the road. We know where the road is going. Uh, but we don't know uh, 
how the drunk man is walking on that road. So we could be like, uh, yeah, almost uh, over the line, or he could uh, be in the middle, or he can uh, he can basically be anywhere on that road. We just know that he's not so drunk that he's going to veer off the road. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically what we assume here, indeed. Yeah. So with all that in mind, you know, what does this say about Bitcoin? What, what can we can we can we say anything about Bitcoin's future? Does it say something interesting about Bitcoin's past? Once we have this knowledge of this high correlation and high co-integration, what can we make of Bitcoin? Yeah, I think um, what we can say right now is like uh, we use the time series from the start uh, of Bitcoin until until now uh, to uh, to actually analyze this, and um, so you could argue that the relation is very uh, robust over time, um, and, and, and been getting more robust over time. I think I saw a, a graph indicating that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the longer this relation holds up, uh, um, yeah, the, the the more difficult it becomes to actually uh, uh, force out of it, more or less. Um, so, Drunk man sobering up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So uh, if we would uh, still apply the same uh, uh, the same illustration, then I would say uh, the co-integration would not break if the drunk man is sober for one day. Uh, but when the drunk man is sober for like uh, a month, yeah, then the co-integration might break, and, uh, and the, the drunk man might uh, might leave the road uh, and uh, take a, a different direction. Uh, to to go back, uh, I th I think what I what I liked about your um, I, let's call it your initial skepticism of it, um, and you took a deeper look into it. I, I like that you didn't just hand wave it as I don't like this model. Um, I don't you know essentially want it to be true because maybe you you have a, a bias towards a different way of valuing Bitcoin essentially. Um, and you actually did the the work, right? Now you did mention that you only did like the first four chapters, but that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's much more work than uh, any of the other skeptics uh, that, or you know, most of the other skeptics that I've seen. Um, and so I, I like the proof of work part. Yeah, thanks for that one. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, th I think I yeah I was probably the first one who actually wrote a, a full review article uh, on the on the model. And uh, yeah, it's been overly and overly discussed uh, uh, online. And uh, yeah, at sometimes it was really frustrating as well because there is a lot, there, a lot of people are out there uh, telling us that yeah, uh, the model is not good or the model uh, is not uh, not built on the right assumptions. And uh, they are actually saying like, okay, but. Uh, we think we should do it uh, this way, or you should look at it from that uh, perspective. And so, I think one of the most, uh, uh, yeah, most supported models was probably the time model, which I analyzed as well uh, at the end of last year, and where I uh, basically came to the conclusion that that model, uh, yeah, uh, was uh, uh, had to be rejected. Is it's the time model basically trying to quantify like the Lindy effect, right? Of Bitcoin has been around longer and therefore it's worth more. Um, I think, 
you could yeah you could probably see it like that uh, but essentially the time model is just uh, applying a linear regression but in instead of using the stock to flow as a as an uh, as a, as the input variable uh, you're basically using time so you you look at days past and yeah that didn't make a mu much sense actually and since stock to flow is obviously like tied to time as well uh is the problem there that the stock to flow is somewhat variable you know you have a you have a faster hash rate at most of the time uh which kind of speeds up the process and so it it, it doesn't happen in a strictly linear fashion is, is this kind of why the stock to flow would hold up and time not um, not really sure if I understood the question there very well. So with stock to flow itself is based on time, right? You know, yeah, over yeah. after X number of blocks, uh, you know, the, the halving happens and yeah. et cetera. But at the same time, uh, mining itself, the, the way that difficulty adjustment works is, you know, it's statistically, uh, it shoots for a block every 10 minutes, but if enough miners yeah. are coming on blocks actually come in faster. Exactly. Yeah, so so it's, it's not it's not perfectly correlated with time. Uh, it's it's a very like dynamic market process itself. Yeah, it's just sort of meant to be based on time. Actually, if it would follow like uh, the the exact uh, ten minutes, then you probably would uh, uh, have a sort of uh, yeah uh, function direct function of time. Uh, and in this case, we don't have it, but we we are able to plot it, of course, over time. Because of all the, the 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 mining dynamics in the background, uh, you basically get more of a, a stochastic uh, uh, variable here than that it would be a um, a fully uh, predictable uh, uh, variable. Yeah, what's interesting to me about the stock to flow, and I think I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but um, it uses completely sort of objective numbers that anyone who's running a full node and has access to uh, market pricing yeah. um, can can verify for themselves. Uh, whereas like the, the interesting thing there is while time to someone might seem like the simpler model, I would argue that perhaps the stock to flow is actually the simpler one. Uh, it's actually based on something that people can know from you know the the consensus data, whereas timestamps in Bitcoin are kind of useful, but not something that there is consensus on. Like they're they're kind of just kind of uh, you know f f they can be kind of like made up in, in a sense. Like they're only they're only true within you know certain boundaries. Uh, whereas like the stock to flow, it's like well I either verified the block or I didn't. Yeah, and so. In Bitcoin, I would actually think that the the stock to flow is the more objective and simpler set of data to be working with, and that only makes it more interesting that such a simple thing has such a a strong effect on uh, the the price modeling. Yeah, 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 certainly. And I think in terms of like, uh, uh, if you, if you look at um, the, the the two variables that we have here, so stock to flow and uh, Bitcoin market cap. And all the information that we have right now in terms of uh, uh, the fact that there is uh, uh, the presence of co-integration, or at least we are, aren't able to reject uh, co-integration. Um, yeah, that's, 
that basically gives us uh, some some more uh, idea of how to uh, how to uh, proceed in the in the future in terms of uh, further improving uh, the model, uh, and that's that's more or less something I'm, I'm working on right now. Uh, so, if you look at uh, time series modeling, um, then I think it's very useful to uh, yeah to follow a sort of decision tree on on. Uh, how you should select uh, the, the the appropriate model to uh, um, uh, to to basically model your data or uh, and um, so yeah it uh, brings up a question or a concern that I've heard and I don't know that we've really addressed it today um, people who say that there's not enough data for the model um, oh there is there's plenty. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry for interrupting there, but uh, go on. <laughs> oh well, so the, you know, they they point to the amount of data that there is for U.S. equities, for example, uh, where they can point back decades and say, okay, here's kind of what the returns have looked like for that, and you know, here's some maybe some statistics that we can run on it. But that with Bitcoin, you know, there's only been a few halvings, and so uh, we don't really have enough <laughs> data. Yeah, the, the thing is, if you look at it in terms of like halvings, then we have only like, yeah, uh, what is it, uh, uh, three halvings, uh, uh, or no, sorry, we have, we have, uh, what is it, 2012, 2016, we have almost three halvings. <laughs> We've got three eras, right? We've got the 50 Bitcoin exactly. era, the 25 Bitcoin era, and the 12 and a half. Exactly. So three eras, two halvings, and a third coming up. Um, so yeah. But the funny thing is that we're not looking at this model in terms of halvings, uh, but we're looking at this model in terms of the stock to flow measure, which you can actually uh, calculate on, on basically on a 10 minute basis, right? Because every time uh, a new block is mined, the stock to flow uh, changes a little bit. So um, you have like 600,000 um, block. Yeah, that's what that's what you could do. Yeah, you could actually uh, run it in, in that regard. What what I did, uh, um, I, I actually looked at it from a daily basis. So um, I used uh, the, the 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 time series since uh, Bitcoin uh, first started trading on uh, on centralized exchanges. Uh, and I, yeah, I actually used the, the coin metrics data. Uh, which was quite useful. Um, and I think uh, Plan B in his initial uh, uh, piece was uh, uh, looking at monthly data. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, uh, yeah. I think he uh, even prefers uh, annual data. Or yeah. Data. Uh, my personal uh, preference goes uh, for daily data because then we have a lot of, uh, of data points available. Um, and... Uh, what was I about to say? Um, is there a minimum number of data points do you think that where you know any less is you're no longer in the realm of statistics? Well, that, that was one of my 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 first um, points of critique as well on um, on his first uh, article basically uh, because in the, in that cross asset model he basically used like three data points and yeah if you have for instance two data points you can always draw a line uh, between two data points so adding a third one is not really uh, very useful, uh, but it, conceptually the, the idea is still uh, very, very nice, of course. Uh, but 
yeah, that, that specific model would get a lot of more body when we could add more data points to it as well uh, to, uh, to make sure that uh, the relation is actually there in, the, in, in a cross-asset uh, uh, yeah, cross context or a cross-commodity context, basically. So, um, you know, given this, the, the interesting, uh, you know, one of the many interesting things about the stock-to-flow model is it's basically insisting that a large, if not, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of almost single primary uh, factor in modeling the price is just this one variable of stock-to-flow. Uh, whereas, as we know, like, the Bitcoin market is a very uh, dynamic and complex organism. Yep. So why is it that we should be taking seriously the idea that there's like this single thing? What about all of the other sort of, uh, you know, sources of, of demand and interest and all of that? Yeah, that's a very great question, actually. Uh, uh, I would uh, most certainly invite anyone uh, who uh, has an, a, a good idea of introducing new, ver- new variables to, uh, to start to play with the data uh, themselves and see if there's any meaningful relation there. Um, and I think Plan B did a lot of work on uh, other, uh, using other ver- variables as well to, uh, to explain, explain price. And, and I know Nick, for instance, did it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that some data is available doesn't uh, necessarily need to uh, mean that uh, that it can be useful in a model as well, uh, or at least results in a uh, in a usable model. And that's that's a good part about uh, about the model as it is right now. Um, it's really sim- uh, It's pretty simplistic. We have two variables, and uh, there is a very strong uh, co-integrating relation between them. Um, which is, in my opinion, quite powerful. Um, and <clears throat> could, could it be that, you know, those those complex factors are something that someone might be able to look at to describe the path of the drunk man, but it just doesn't tell us as much about the path of the road? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the path of the road is... Pretty, uh, pretty pretty clear right mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah the pet of the drunk man that's indeed the big question mark so the, we know that it will follow the road uh, but what if there are for instance like some some objects on the road uh, how, how how does it how does a drunk person deal with the drunk uh, with the with the objects on the road uh, so those are nice extra uh, features that one could introduce to the model uh, and yeah, I know Nick, for instance, is really working hard on that one as well. Uh, I'm myself, I'm looking into that as well at the moment. Uh, uh, like, like I said before, I'm, I'm really uh, working on like a, a theoretical decision tree right now of how we can uh, come to a proper, uh, more inclusive uh, model uh, that that fits completely with uh, uh, with all the theory, uh, with all the econometric theory around it, um, such that we can uh, can actually uh, yeah, take it to the next level. But I, I think that there's also like uh, risks that can't go into a model. For example, of course, yeah. an exploit of you know Bitcoin going to zero on one day. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, now, the, the thing with modesty is uh, like, and, and I, I think I've um, said it often on uh, on Twitter as well. Is like uh, all models are wrong, and some uh, tend to be useful. Um, and yeah, you you can't uh, uh, include like all the different factors out there because. Uh, yeah, then, then the model would be would turn out to be very, too complex actually to be able to use it, um, and um, so so that's one thing. And uh, yeah, so second yeah. thing is that yeah, I mean, in the end, uh, the model could turn out to be wrong as well. Uh, it's there's no guarantee here, and um, so on, on that topic uh, when. When financial professionals communicate with the public, they usually do um, imply or indicate that if you invest in the stock market over the course of, let's say, 30 years, you'll make 8% a year. And they say this with tremendous confidence, right? Um, (laughs) And... You know, there's there's more nuanced uh, analyses like the Trinity study, which uh, looked at the investment life cycle, right, of when you were born and uh, looking at those um, the returns over the life of your portfolio. But in, in any case, you know, they, they do have a lot of confidence about these numbers. And if, if Bitcoiners come out with a lot of confidence about, let's say, S2F price forecast, uh, do you do you think that the latter is a shill and the former is financially responsible? <laughs> That's a nice question. Uh, yeah, I think when when finance professionals mention uh, like average uh, yearly returns on on assets, that's yeah, uh, using like a, a, a immense uh, uh, data set, of course. Uh, but at the same time, it. The guarantees uh, with respect to that uh, that that uh, mentioned return uh, are more or less uh, equal uh, to uh, to the, the average return that we see with Bitcoin uh, right now. So in that sense, uh, yeah, I would value both uh, uh, in both uh, mentions of like an annual percentage of return uh, equally. Um, and yeah, to call this model a shield, yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'll still have to uh, to wait and see how uh, how the public will respond uh, when I uh, uh, talk about this uh, stuff uh, on, on on conferences and uh, to uh, to institutional investors, uh, and they might consider it like that. But I would be very surprised if they do so, because yeah, I mean, if you're a rational investor, uh, the data is there, uh, the econometric analysis is there. Um, so, yeah, what what else would you need? I mean, it's it's not like uh, that, that the stock to flow model um, is a sort of marketing campaign for Bitcoin, uh, <laughs> if you understand what I mean. Yeah, it's just data, right? Yeah, it's it's cold hard data. It really tells you, uh, uh, yeah, nothing nothing more, nothing less. Um, and and it's something that I also think about in this context is. Let's say that the parameters for the correlation destabilized and basically we went sideways, you know, from here. Um, That's still uh, like that. That seems far less likely than let's say, okay, we don't go up as much as we have in the past. Right. So, oh, now we're talking about 
earning 400% instead of 1300% in a good year. Still completely ridiculous numbers. Shit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And is there any question related to that? Uh, uh... Uh, no, I just uh, I, now I'm just thinking out loud about uh, how even if we're wrong, as long as we're not like crazy wrong, then uh, we are still looking at returns that would far exceed any investor's expectations compared to like existing markets. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's basically my expectation as well. And um, yeah, I, I think that will be driven by a. Uh, uh, more or less as well by uh, by the fact that we are dealing with a, a shift in uh, in the investment space. I would say uh, we see uh, uh, or sorry a shift in in, in wealth. Basically, uh, we see more and more millennials and uh, the generations after uh, coming in and uh, looking for a clever way to uh, uh, to put their money away. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, that I noticed was that. For instance, an investment in Bitcoin is more attractive than an investment in Netflix uh, to them, uh, and yeah, that tells a, a, a great story, of course. So it's it's uh, um, the, the further we go in terms of like this this shift in wealth, uh, the more that that effect will realize over time. So yeah, that that should drive uh, the price for Bitcoin up as well because I mean supply is limited. Uh, if demand rises while supply is limited, then uh, there's only one way to go, and that's price, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the so this kind of brings up like the demand side, um, and to me, the demand side is what kind of drives the R squared not being one uh, and. You know the the uh, correlation parameters being what they are. Um, do, so, do you think that like we're all machines and we're uh, you know free will is a myth and uh, <laughs> Adam Smith's invisible hand? No, I, I think if if everyone on the world would be like uh, uh, as rational as it could be, yeah, then then you could argue that we would all be machines, but. Uh, I think that especially humans are very, uh, very emotional uh, creatures. Uh, so, and, and that's basically driving those those uh, large waves of um, of, of FOMO uh, and uh, and also, uh, yeah, the opposite. Uh, the, the major uh, large corrections are accelerated by because of emotion. Um, so, no, I don't. I don't think that we are all machines. Uh, yeah, because it's it's funny because you know it, each cycle's the same uh, or has been, it has felt the same to me in in yeah. Bitcoin of like the the euphoria to the despair, and I I have to think that we'll learn from it, right? And so one of the things that people talk about is once we become aware of S two F, then we're going to throw off the parameters, right? Because there's reflexivity in our knowledge. Yeah, that's what what you would expect, uh, maybe. But uh, if you look back at, uh, in, uh, if you actually look at the data, um, then you see that uh, the, the counter-grading relation holds up for like ten years, and it it basically dealt with those uh, with those cycles before already. Um, maybe, but maybe that's, and, that's the direction and, I'm going in. Is that um, you know the the co-integration is 
going to get stronger and stronger as we learn how the system works um, rather than weaker and weaker. And so to the point that it would actually change the model because, because of that. I don't know if that makes sense, though. No, I mean, if, if the co-integration would, uh, would become stronger and stronger, uh, that would basically imply that uh, over time we would uh, follow uh, the road as, as laid out right now. Um, and and I, what do you make of, uh, you know, that terminal uh, infinite value? Is that just hyperinflation? Or is yeah, that's, that's a very good one. Uh, yeah, to, to me, it, 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 it could be many things. It could be hyperinflation. It could be, uh, yeah, um, uh, sort of an implosion uh, of the dollar. Uh, there, there could be so many things. Uh, so I think it's a very good question to ask, like, okay, how many uh, halvings is this uh, model going to hold up over time? And yeah, that's basically the same question as asking, uh, uh, or it's basically the same as asking, um, what do you think uh, that would be a fair number uh, to, to put on uh, the, the final value for Bitcoin? Uh, um, and, and yeah, it really depends on who you ask, I guess, uh, because I've, I've asked many different people this question. And uh, yeah, some people think that a number above 100K is already completely unthinkable um, uh, while others uh, don't even uh, blink their eyes when you mention a number of like 10 million for one bitcoin so uh, yeah it's 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 a very good question and it's uh, probably like uh, impossible to answer uh, correctly uh, and i think it's something that time will tell us yeah i i, I used to firmly be in the camp of hyperinflation and then Safety talked me into this concept of Bitcoin just replacing the U.S. dollar with without having any hyperinflation of the U.S. dollar um, in uh, you know purchasing power in real life, um, which I find it really interesting and uh, very. It's even more uh, optimistic than than I had in mind. Yeah, I think the the argument there basically is that um, as people are demanding more bitcoins, uh, there's less demand for newly printed dollars, and so the dollar kind of just has to tighten up by necessity because you can only print new dollars if someone actually you know wants to get their hands on them, um, and so the dollar kind of just like withers away. Yeah, so that's that's basically something that I think myself will happen as well. Uh, the expectation, the, the expectation that I have for Bitcoin over time is that it probably will uh, end up like a sort of world reserve currency, uh, because if if you think about it in terms of like sound money, uh, then uh, yeah, history basically showed us that eventually uh, humans uh, prefer to to hold the most sound money that uh, that is out there, and. Yeah, if enough uh, people start to think that that Bitcoin is indeed a good replacement uh, for, for instance, gold or that should be considered as money in general, then yeah, then we're basically there, right? Uh, as as soon as people realize that Bitcoin is a, a form of money and it's also the most sound money that's out there, uh, then it will eventually drive uh, yeah everything towards Bitcoin. Okay, I've got a I've got a thought experiment. Let's say uh, you have a day job where you get a bi-weekly paycheck and 
every paycheck, you put the entire value into Bitcoin. Um, and then you use that as collateral and borrow against it um, using the, his, the stock to flow model to establish what your safe withdrawal rate is, right? Your, that, what's the safe amount you can borrow against the Bitcoin? And then that would be fiat denominated. You know, you can attach whatever interest rate you want. Go look at BlockFi or Unchain Capital to see their interest rates. Um, but presumably those interest rates are much lower than the appreciation and value of the collateral. Um, if we follow the stock flow model, you know, you can put it down like two standard or three standard deviations to be conservative, just, you know, in terms of risk management. But um, do you think that would be like a horribly irresponsible product or that, <laughs> that it actually is just like something that, you know, if we're right, this is just the rational thing to do? So basically, you, you ask me if I think uh, whether it's a responsible thing to do to uh, follow a dollar cost averaging strategy with on a biweekly basis, right? With your salary. And leveraging against it, right? And borrowing fiat. Ooh, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, personally, uh, I'm not really uh, a big fan of leveraging uh, uh, because I think it introduces uh, uh, a lot of risk uh, that people uh, yeah, don't understand uh, very well uh, most often. Um, so, yeah, the, the question is, why would you want to leverage uh, there uh, if uh, the expected return is already good enough on itself? That's a great question. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if you introduce leverage, you, you just introduce the risk of getting liquidated or uh, or running the risk of... Uh, about, like altcoin trading, when people say, hey, make a little more, make some more Bitcoin by trading altcoins. And it's like, okay, even if you're successful in dollar terms, you might be making like 1600% instead of 1400%, right? Which isn't <laughs> yeah. really, mar at, at, you know, marginal, although, you know... It, is there a marginal utility for returns? Are there diminishing marginal uh, benefits? Uh, that'll depend on the person, right? Yeah. Some people see it as a scoreboard, not a way of buying more Lambos. Well, yeah, to, to answer the question, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's probably, a, a, if you're not a very sophisticated investor, it's probably very good uh, to, to follow a dollar cost averaging strategy uh, uh, even if you do it uh, on a bi-weekly basis uh, for half your salary. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And do you, do you follow the derivative space as well? Um, options and futures and whatnot? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, my background uh, basically is uh, in the derivative space. So I, I started uh, uh, as, an, uh, as a market maker in equity options in 2007 uh, and uh, basically uh, ended my career as a uh, uh, institutional uh, uh, balance sheet risk manager uh, using uh, like the most complex derivatives uh, to uh, to hedge pension funds balance sheets so i have some uh, yeah some experience with uh, with derivatives in that regard and uh, yeah i do follow uh, where, where where that market is heading um and one of the things that I find interesting is that um, uh, in the conventional world, um, the how do you say that uh, the size of the market uh, for for derivatives uh, compared to uh, uh, the size of the market for uh, uh, for for just spot products is is 
Yeah, immensive. And in, for Bitcoin, it's it's the opposite uh, still at the moment. Um, and I think that applies to crypto in general. So it's and the derivative space is uh, is still uh, pretty small, uh, and uh, yeah, shows a lot of, of upside potential in that regard. If you uh, can say that um, that eventually uh, for Bitcoin, it might uh, it makes sense that we would reach the same uh, uh, the same ratio. So yeah. What do you think of the the current infrastructure for Bitcoin derivatives? Um, is is it mature enough for this next bull market that's going to take us to think bigger? Oh, I think it's definitely helpful. Uh, uh, in ter- if you look at the, the institutional infrastructure right now, uh, uh, I think think uh, there, there are two things that are very important. I think it's one is and that's of utmost importance is uh, custodial services. Uh, and the second one is, uh, is I think, derivatives. Um, and um, yeah, you got like uh, a couple of larger uh, platforms right now that focus on, on the institutionals. Um, and you also have like the platforms that are available to retail. Um, and I think those those platforms that are available to retail are also used by uh, by the larger uh, institutional uh, players at the moment. Um, and I, I definitely think that will help uh, people, uh, uh, yeah, to to build solid strategies uh, in terms of like hedging downside risk, uh, for instance. Yeah, and um, in in terms of actually trading, uh, let's say. Using the S2F model to generate alpha, right? Do, do you think that's uh, a, a plausible? I mean, it seems like that's what you're working on. So I guess the, the question is, uh, um, what opportunities do you see there? Yeah, I think uh, if if you look at the idea of uh, FGO integration, uh, which is uh, uh, shown for uh, for the relationship between stock to flow and Bitcoin price, uh, that you could indeed uh, use a uh, um, an indicator around or built on top of that model, basically, uh, that shows you uh, when when there is a good opportunity to buy and when it's a good opportunity to sell, um, and you can apply that same uh, that same concept uh, if you are, for instance, an altcoin uh, trader who likes to uh, uh, to take a gamble there. Um, and I think it was uh, Willy uh, Willy Wu who uh, showed that. Uh, most of those altcoins were actually trending down versus Bitcoin. And some of them were actually like uh, following a, uh, a uh, uh, yeah, sort of stationary time series. And if you would consider the latter, then, then you can really uh, exploit uh, that, that concept. Mentioning altcoins brings up, uh, I think, an important question uh, that I that I've seen often, um, which I don't fully have an answer to, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thought. Which is, yeah. there are coins out there like uh, like Litecoin that have effectively the same monetary policy as Bitcoin, and yet uh, no other altcoin except for Bitcoin, no other cryptocurrency has uh, displayed the same kind of stock to flow uh, uh, co-integration. Uh, wh- why do you think this is? Yeah, I think Bitcoin is like light years ahead in terms of like uh, 
adoption and in terms of like brand and in terms of like size of the network. So that's probably the fundamental uh, uh, answer uh, to that question. Uh, yeah, in, in terms of like looking at cold hard data only, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, it's, it's just a data showing that there is co-integration uh, for Bitcoin, but there isn't for the others. So, and it's something that, that that's uh, probably very interesting uh, to keep an eye on because over time, um, yeah, it, it could turn out that uh, for other uh, cryptocurrencies, you could see the same uh, thing happening. But uh, yeah, for, for now, it's it's really hard to, uh, to, to, yeah, to say anything uh, reasonable about it. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think that it's because uh, unlike I, I think that Bitcoin has a more credible monetary policy where, yeah. you know, it's been it's been more like actually thoroughly attacked uh, by by various forces and yeah. it's been able to withstand that. And so the market has more information uh, on top of just merely the fact that it's it's older and like you said, has has all the you know biggest numbers on all of the other sort of uh, network effects, as as Trace Mare calls it. Um, so, so that kind of gives it an edge there. Um, but the interesting thing is even if, uh, another coin started to have that stock to flow, I would actually imagine it would be very difficult at this point for that to develop just for the fact that, uh, you know, m money is such a, uh, sort of zero sum game in the sense that one money beats another money. Like you, in a full free market of, of uh, money, I would expect one to dominate all. And yep. so if if there's market trends towards like this kind of stock to flow thing, it seems like it would just, you know, continue for the one that's most liquid and perhaps not really have a reason to develop around other goods uh, without some like, you know, 10x, 100x factor of some kind that makes it better. Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, Bitcoin, uh, in that sense, has uh, withstood the tent of time. I'm not sure if that's uh, a valid uh, way to put it in English. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, this was really highlighted for me recently. Uh, my grandfather called, and he's in his 80s, and I had never spoken to him about Bitcoin at all because I just assumed <laughs> that this was not the right person to speak about Bitcoin with. Um, and he tells me that he saw a documentary on French television, and it was about uh, Bitcoin. And he starts explaining to me how uh, Bitcoin is a store value asset like gold. <laughs> Have you heard of this, Pierre? Yeah. Um, and, and, <laughs> well, he, he was asking, it like, you know, do you agree? Like, is this your view as well? And I was, uh, you know it was astounding to me that that was his takeaway from this documentary and that he was totally, you know, um, pro BTC. <laughs> in Very interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 the thing is that a lot of people don't really think about uh, money in, in, in that regard. Right. So uh, people use it every day, but uh, there is a very, very poor understanding about, uh, yeah, about money in general, uh, I would say. Yes, although I have been optimistic just seeing, um, you know, the rounds and rounds of new people that have entered the space over the years um, and just seeing how Bitcoin lights that fire for them and gets them uh, really hyped up on just learning about how all of this actually works. And 
uh, I think, you know, that's going to self-select for a certain kind of person. But I can imagine that, you know, as, as that trickles throughout the economy, so too will, will more people uh, at, at the very least start to notice, uh, you know, connections between money and kind of how they're thinking about the world. Uh, Pierre, can you hear me? Uh-oh, yeah, maybe we lost uh, Mr. Marcel. That's okay. Um, we can just continue the, the episode ourselves if you're, uh, if you're free. Yeah. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I, I think that the model has caused a lot of brain damage uh, to folks on Twitter as well in the sense of, uh, you know, they bring up the Austrian economics and how oh, we're supposed to be opposed to this empiricism, uh, you know, and we should only be looking at qualitative factors. Or, or in the worst iteration of this criticism, they'll say, hey, look, this is not persuasive for people. We need to talk about censorship resistance and utility and payments instead, which I find utterly mind-boggling. But what's your reaction, Michael? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I, I think some of the, and, and, uh, real quick to interrupt. Uh, yes, Marcel. Uh, yeah, sorry. My, yeah. my, uh, my, uh, connection, uh, just, uh, <laughs> turned out. So, and no worries. Um, uh, my best. so here to, to respond to your question, um, you know, as far as like the, the Austrian, uh, aspect, uh, you touched on this on another podcast, but, um, you know, there is a difference between theory and history and empirical data is just empirical data and we have that and we you know can can ponder that uh my take from an economics point of view is that in order to make sense of how to interpret it uh you need economic theory so like no no empirical data just kind of reveals uh knowledge about the world uh to you per se like you have to have that a priori theory to make sense of it and so from here, it's actually interesting, I think, to the Austrian because we have this very interesting empirical thing that, you know, kind of starts to make us uh, think about, uh, you know, the, the economic theory, perhaps in a way that we would have missed before. So I think the biggest one is, you know, uh, Parabolic Trav talks about, you know, uh, demand following price. And that seems uh, counterintuitive, uh, but without even touching the empirics, you know, the empirics can still inspire us to go look back at that theory and think about, well, what is sort of the uh, Veblen good nature of money? And then it actually, from a theoretical point of view, does make sense. And we can kind of, you know, move forward from there. So I actually think it can, it's not, it's, to be clear, it's not that the empirics uh, invalidate uh, or, or validate uh, the theory, uh, but it can help. Uh, shine a light on on places that we may have missed before because you know Mises never had to think about what is the actual monetization process of gold it was just a it was a given um so i think it's been a, an interesting opportunity for the you know censorship censorship resistance part of it of course you know we all we all want that out of bitcoin and bitcoin would be uh, rather useless if it did not have that because it would imply that it's you know not decentralized and if it's not decentralized then you don't have actually this actual like you know monetary policy credibility and all these things are kind of tied together and you, you, you need them as a package but you know I, empirically speaking it seems like number go up uh is 
actually the reason that people get interested in Bitcoin. Um, I think, uh, you know, our, our guest today, Marcel, you were just telling us about how uh, effectively a Porsche as a proxy for number go up was that what really piqued your interest uh, again. And so I, I think, uh, you know, especially for, for a lot of, uh, you know, uh, American centric, but for a lot of Americans, uh, there's, you know, various like online uh, censorship issues that people are facing. But in their sort of day-to-day uh, financial lives, I don't think that that comes up as often. A lot of the, you know, PayPal freezing accounts and stuff like that tends to happen. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, I, I welcome someone to, to show me how things are even worse than I thought. But uh, these these are more kind of on the edges. And they're bad edge cases that I hope that Bitcoin uh, can address. But it's not what, you know, just, just a normal... Uh, investor that you're going to run across is going to be interested in. Whereas number go up is, as I've pointed out, the most socially scalable meme you can have. There's there's <laughs> not a person on earth who is impervious uh, and immune to just number go up. So um, I, I actually, I don't know it's more persuasive. <laughs> yeah, my, my reaction on the censorship resistance is that it's it, the censoring is always symptomatic of the fact that you are living under a totalitarian dictatorship. And so like your focus should be on overthrowing it. And um, I don't think agorism actually would uh, succeed in, in that uh, undertaking. Um, and yeah, but in any case uh, that's a kind of a different topic, but yeah, censorship resistance is great, but to me, it's not like a, a solution that we should be uh, promoting for people. Right. There's also the censorship resistance in terms of, uh, you know, the, the mining dynamics, you know, the governance of it and the censorship resistance of like literal actual transactions, which is actually separate because when you trade things uh, for Bitcoins, you know, Bitcoin has no control of those outside goods. And so, you can even have censorship resistance on uh, the transaction. You can have a uh, transaction go through to pay for drugs or something like that. Uh, but you and everyone involved in that transaction can still get sort of busted. And it's in a sense that uh, transaction was censored. Um, so there's, there's the, 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 the language itself is kind of uh, conflated over a, a couple different concepts. And that, that makes uh, discussion on this a little tedious as well. Uh, Marcel, I'm interested. I, I think you mostly had comments about number go up. Yeah, well, it was more about your statement <coughs> about uh, how uh, economists uh, uh, like to formulate uh, hypothesis. Um, and I think that's uh, that's exactly where econometricians uh, uh, can add value because you can, of course, uh, think about the most gracious relations, uh, but um, if you don't use the data that's available to you to actually uh, validate those uh, those uh, hypotheses. Um, then, yeah, the, the question is like, what are they going to bring you? Uh, I mean, and um, yeah, that's that's really uh, yeah one of the, the great uh, advantages of using uh, econometric research uh, to basically validate those uh, those interesting uh, hypotheses. Uh, uh. Right. So. You know, for, for this, like for the, the people, especially those, you know, so uh, Marcel, I, I don't know how much you're, you're you know, kind of uh, 
you know, into the Austrian school, which uh, our, our listeners tend to be interested in. Um, but I, I don't, th- I do think that there can be plenty of uh, synthesis here uh, just by the fact of we, we have to have a good understanding of what specifically economic theory means, uh, which tends to be from the, from the proxiological thought, it's, it's just like kind of the pure logic of choice. And so it's like, you know, if, if your theory, uh, if someone presents like an econometrics theory, uh, that requires people to have, uh, you know, uh, chosen to do a and not a at the same time, um, you know, I as a praxeologist would throw that theory out from the get go, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, bother even testing it because it, it logically cannot make sense in the context of what it even means uh, to act as an economic agent. Um, but for uh, you know, real world empirical things, you know, like the economic theory can't tell us, you know, how much people will prefer uh, McDonald's to Burger King or something like that because it's not about uh, specific uh, um, uh, means and ends. It's about the logic of it in general. And so, uh, you know, econometrics, I- I'm sure, has has you know plenty of uses uh, to be able to just kind of kind of sift through all that data and kind of come to some conclusion about where markets are headed uh, through like actual real world uh, values within that framework of the logic of choice. That makes perfect sense. I think, uh, I mean, you could use uh, econometrics in, in, for, uh, in two, uh, two directions in that sense. Uh, so you could uh, use it to display uh, uh, certain relations within a big pile of data. Uh, and you could also use it to uh, validate a certain hypothesis uh, that you first uh, formulate uh, by thinking, uh, uh, thinking ex- uh, very uh, intensely about, uh, about how certain uh, uh, relations could be there. So, yeah, I see. I see uses for both actually. So, and what I th- what I try to say is um, uh, that you could actually uh, stumble on a, a relation in the data that you wouldn't have thought of at first, and then start to to think about uh, how to actually, uh, uh, yeah, how to actually inter- interpret uh, uh, the relation and whether that makes sense in a. Uh, a proxy logical uh, uh, way. Michael, did you have any more questions? Uh, I don't have any specifically coming to mind. Uh, we've covered so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got all my questions answered. I'm going to go buy some more Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I think yeah, we covered we covered uh, uh, very much indeed. Uh, yeah, I hope uh, I hope I did. So, yeah, I really hope you guys can make something out of it because uh, I, I noticed that yeah, I'm not really very fluent in English. So sometimes I really need to have uh, to think about how to uh, about how to bring it. Um, so yeah, I don't hope you have too much edit work uh, or editorial work to do there. No, we we, uh, we hired someone to do it, so uh, it's really right. yeah. <laughs> we pay the same amount no matter how much they delete. <laughs> so yeah. It'll be it'll be good. I, I think that it was it was clear and uh, concise, and uh, yeah, we're we're excited to uh, yeah. share this with our audience. 
Marcel, if people want to uh, keep up with your work, uh, can you share like your Twitter and your website and consulting? Yeah, sure. Do you want me to uh, just put it in the chat here? Uh, you can uh, just chill on on the oh, air. Oh, okay, okay, of course, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll of course include links in the show notes as well. Okay. Uh, yeah. So if people are uh, interested to uh, yeah to stay in the loop about my research. Uh, uh, they should uh, definitely follow me on uh, on Twitter. Uh, my uh, uh, my handle is uh, Burger Crypto AM. Um, and next to that, I have also launched uh, a website uh, which is about uh, Bitcoin and metrics uh, because I'm actually writing a book on the matter uh, to make it uh, a bit more understandable for a larger audience uh, what we're actually trying to do here. Um, so yeah, if if you're interested in uh, reading more about uh, about econometric modeling of Bitcoin data, uh, then I would definitely recommend you to subscribe to the website as well. Wonderful. I'm I'm looking forward to that book because uh, you know I've I've spent a lot more time thinking about just the the cold economic theory, uh, but not as much when I do come across these sort of uh, empirical values that I want to kind of comb through and make some sense of uh i don't have as many of those tools so i i look forward to learning uh more about them from you yeah yeah <laughs> i really hope i'm able to actually uh, uh yeah realize my my target launch date because uh, i'm thinking about launching it uh, uh well a little bit after uh, the halving uh, but for me it's the first time i'm actually writing a book uh, having that said um, I'm a better writer than a speaker, I guess. Um, so uh, if people thought that uh, some of my uh, uh, answers were a bit fuzzy, uh, you can expect uh, a very clean structure in my uh, in my uh, written materials. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much as well for having me. Who knows the heart of the sea? Who knows its depths? And as I read that, I wondered to myself, are we just the little fishes? Abandoning ourselves to the waves to sing and dance and play. Is that what we're doing? And I'm not saying don't have fun. I'm not saying don't sing and dance and play. Enjoy life, of course, and relish the joy of life. But I think you have to make sure you don't dance your life away. Don't be one of the little fishes. And in Dokodo, that final writing of Masashi before he died, the last thing he wrote was never stray from the way. And I think that that's what this is about. All the fun and the singing and the dancing and all the play, it's okay. 
It's good. But all those things can be distractions. Because there is a path. There is a way. And you know what that way is. You know what you should be doing. And it's hard to stay on that path because it is the path of discipline and discomfort. But it is the right path. And you know that. And it is that path that will ultimately lead you to where you really want to be. So that you can live and you can die without regrets. I think a lot of times people are trying to find the path and they're looking all around different places and different people and different influences. But man, I think so often that path, you know what the path is and people know what they're supposed to be doing, but they just don't get on the path and stay on the path. Yeah, I agree. Or it's something they felt when they were eight or 12 and they, they travel the world or travel through life's experiences trying to find the answer that was in front of them the entire time. And so they come back to see what they knew with different eyes and to recognize that they knew the path all along, which is something that uh, I so enjoyed about this book and the character, both real and certainly presented by the author of Musashi, who is using his experiences in this domain of the sword as a uh, means of thematic interconnectedness. And so unlike uh, Kojiro at the end, he is not just a technician with the sword, although he is a brilliant technician. Mm -hmm. He's tilling the soil. He's constructing buildings, which later he did quite a lot of. Uh, in terms of architecture and overseeing the building instead of destruction of things and finding at the highest levels of performance with the sword in felling opponents the the principles, the first principles that he can apply everywhere. And that's part of what fascinates me so much about Musashi or anyone who's the best at what they do is that it could be anything. It could be pottery. It could be sniping. It could be calligraphy, but like the best. They see the depth. They see the, the interwoven web that can expand from that one fine focus into everything that they do. And I think that, for me at least, is the path and Maybe it's just coming off of a silent retreat that I want to talk this way, but it doesn't strike me as something that is cleanly expressed in an Instagram post or a quote necessarily. It's, it's more of a feeling. Like You know if you're sober and 
take a moment to sit in the stillness. And by stillness, I don't mean sitting on a mountaintop. It could just be five minutes of silence when you first get up in the morning and observe your own mind and how you feel. Like, you know if you're on the path or not. Or at least you know when you're not on it. I, I totally agree. You know, you know when you're not on it. And I think that the feeling of being on it, when you're on the path, it has that beauty of mindlessness or no mind is what they would say in say Zen, the state of no mind. And it sounds like unconscious, but it's different. It's not unconscious. It's not subconscious. It's something else where you feel that you're exactly where you should be doing exactly what you should be doing and you're not planning you're just putting one foot in front of the other on this path that you didn't have to find because in a way the path was seeking you the whole time and it's just a feeling it's a really uh, it's a feeling I think that everyone can have but they get so caught up we all get caught up well I don't want to speak for you two fine gents, I'll speak for myself. It's, it's easy to get caught up in the noise and the shiny objects. And just like the little fish you were talking about earlier, it's like when you see that lure, to recognize it as a lure is sort of the first step. And then to realize that when you look past the lure, all right, there's a lure 16 inches in front of you, and then you're in an ocean that has endless fathoms of depth. What a journey.